0: You are listening to and watching the Beyond Sets and Reps Research to Reps Roundtable. I'm your host, Pat Ivey, and joining me are co-hosts, Javar Gillette with the Houston Rockets and Ted Lambranitas, who is the director of sports science with the NFL. Our goal is to have science move from research to practical application. We will provide resources that can help you be the best professional possible. Welcome to another version of Research to Reps Roundtable. This is our second episode, and uh, we are really, really excited. Got a lot of great feedback from the first episode, and today we are going to keep this thing rolling. So once again, I'm your co-host, Pat Ivey, uh, from the Beyond Sets and Reps podcast. This is our spinoff. We're excited about that. We're going to get right into it. There will be research. We will talk about the practical application of the research and making sure that our audience, you have something tangible to walk away with uh, once you are listening to this podcast or if you're watching it. I've been in college athletics and as an administrator or as a coach for over 20 years, and we're bringing all of this and that experience to you all. So I will pass it to my co-host, Javar Gillette.
1: Hey guys. Uh, good to be back with you. Um, my name is Jabar Gillette. I'm the director of athletic performance for the Houston Rockets it's going on. Uh, this is my currently in my sixth season, uh, with the Rockets after spending 14 seasons with Detroit Tigers, uh, professional baseball club. So it's, it's fun to be back with you guys. Uh, Ted, how you been, man?
2: Good. I'm, uh, Ted Lambranidis and, uh, I do the uh, sports science consulting for the National Football League, and uh, I'm honored to introduce our special guest today, uh, Dr. Bob Murray. Bob is a uh, a doctorate at uh, The Ohio State University. He taught the collegiate level, and uh, he was the uh, founder of the uh, Gatorade Sports Science Institute, and uh, over the years, uh, it's published... Countless papers in the area of uh, athletic performance, ergogenic aids, uh, hydration, um, and he's been doing consulting now, uh, you know, internationally for you know the last fifteen years. And uh, he's been involved with some projects with um, uh, the testing of dietary supplements, and he's for the topic of performance-enhancing substances. Bob's probably as good of a guest as you could get.
3: Well, thanks, Ted. I appreciate that introduction, and uh, I hope you're right about that. Well, we'll see.
0: <laughs> well, this would be good. I'm excited. Uh, I want to ask the first question because um, just just to get a few definitions out of the way. Um, things have changed quite a lot since I was a student athlete in in, in college. And uh, there, um, what is just just some a few definitions, Bob, that you can throw out there um, just to help us out. Um, from ergogenic aids, um, whether androgens, the difference between what steroids, just a few to get us started, and then we can keep this thing going.
3: Sure. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned ergogenic aids, and that's a great place to start because uh, that includes uh, a whole variety of different categories of things that are performing enhancing agents, which is what ergogenic refers to, enhanced work output. And, you know, that uh, the ergogenic aids can vary from uh, anything from a pep talk from a coach that gets the team all excited and you know, performing at a higher level than they might otherwise, to uh, the use of uh, performance enhancing drugs on the other end of the spectrum, and everything in between. In, in the world of sports nutrition, uh, being well hydrated is an ergogenic aid. Consuming carbohydrate during exercise is an ergogenic aid. Consuming a uh, consistently a diet high in carbohydrates is an ergogenic aid, um, and consequently there are Lots and lots of different types of ergogenic aids, all of which have varying amounts of scientific support as to their actual benefits in terms of their impact on performance. And we can get into some of those comparisons in a little bit. Uh, In the world of uh, supplement contamination, uh, one of the things that coaches and athletes and all sports health professionals have to be aware of is that the risk of supplement contamination continues to this day. And uh, I learned earlier today from Ted that uh, 75% of the NCAA uh, uh, um, drug testing violations are due to contaminated supplements. So it's a, it's a big problem, obviously, on the collegiate level here in the U.S. I think worldwide, the estimates of uh, at sort of the Olympic and international level competition are a little bit lower than that. Uh, but. It, it's really anybody's guess as to how many supplements are contaminated, and um, you know how how many of those result in positive drug tests. And these contamination these contaminants can be anything from anabolics, the steroids, the stimulants, and diuretics. And there's a whole wide variety of different categories of contaminants, most of which are uh, prescription medications. So it's a a real problem and something that uh, athletes and coaches have to be well aware of um, if they're going to have athletes consume dietary supplements.
0: Javar, is that something that you're concerned with, um, with your athletes um, taking supplements and it being those supplements being contaminated?
1: And so, so we've gotten – you know, I've taken the approach that I took with the Tigers in, in Major League Baseball, and now I've brought it to basketball, even though the NBA doesn't necessarily um, mandate NSF-certified products. Our organization, I've, I've really made it a point that we only provide NSF-certified products. So, you know, Bob, just kind of giving a background on how does – how does a product get contaminated? Where, where are these products ending up? Like, is it a GNC? Is it, so for our listeners, where are these athletes getting these, these tainted products? And, and I guess that would be the first step that I've always tried to educate my athletes is like, listen, you can go to GNC and take and, and purchase a product that can be contaminated. So be careful, only provide or only use the products that we 're providing, but if, if you can give a little quick background on on how it, this even starts, <laughs> you know what I mean
3: yeah, sure, and let me start with uh, that last part of the question, which is how do products become contaminated in the first place so it it happens one of two ways, basically, either the manufacturer intentionally contaminates the product by putting in. Um, a performance enhancing drug or something that's going to stimulate weight loss or uh, produce sexual enhancement. uh, And they do it deliberately and then try to try to hide the uh, presence of that supplement by not listing it on the label or by listing it as uh, one of many different aliases that uh, can be used to sort of masquerade um, uh, contaminants. And, And the other way that supplements can become contaminated is inadvertently, just by accident. Either the uh, suppliers that they buy their supplement ingredients from um, have a sloppy operation and things become contaminated uh, one way or another, or the production facility um, has run a a product that contains a banned substances on one production line and doesn't clean that line adequately uh, before another product is run. So there's lots of ways that products can contain uh, contaminants by accident. And as you mentioned, you know, NSF is one uh, certification that's very valuable. Uh, The BSCG, the banned Substance Control Group, Informed Sport, U.S. Pharmacopeia are others that also do supplement testing to try to look for the presence of um, a list of common banned substances. That doesn't eliminate the risk. That but it does drastically reduce the risk. And in my mind, anytime I see that type of certification on a product that tells me that the manufacturer is making a good faith effort to try to make sure that their product uh, does not contain a banned substance, either uh, inadvertently or on purpose.
1: Right. They, They have to spend quite a bit of money to go through that process. So it's not just a mom and pop shop, you know, um, just making it in the back, in their back room yeah. or in their kitchen, right? You know, these are reputable, more reputable companies. Uh, what our athletes got to realize is that these, that the supplement industry is not regulated by the FDA. So, what's on the label isn't necessarily what is uh, in that actual product. So, this NSF or Informed Choice, uh, as you mentioned, these companies are putting their products through stringent testing. And, and then providing us with those products to provide to the players. So, uh, you know, the products that we're providing have gone through more stringent testing that really gives the, the athlete, the consumer, more confidence that it isn't tainted with the performance-enhancing substance.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, if this uh, certification is done correctly, not only is this, are samples of the supplement themselves tested, but the manufacturing facilities are also audited to make sure that they're following good manufacturing practices and that the lines are cleaned in a regular basis and that there are no contaminant contaminant ingredients in the facility. Uh, you know, there's a lot that can happen. I mean, heck, you can, some athletes have tested positive for um, uh, performance enhancing drugs simply because the pharmacy that filled their prescription uh, had a sloppy operation and uh, didn't clean the dispensing trays uh, before they dispensed the athlete's uh, prescription, allowable prescription. So these, these kind of um, mistakes can happen and, you know, athletes need to be aware of it because it's, it's uh, not, uh, not at all uncommon.
0: Ted with the NFL. What are you experiencing? What's your experience with this?
2: Um, You know, I think most is uh, the supplements that they'll have out. Most of them have all, you know, they're all NSF uh, certified. And obviously, you'll get players that will, you know, will ask questions about something that was maybe recommended to them. And in that case, you always tell them to bring it in to show to the uh, sports medicine staff. Uh, they can always scan the barcode to see, you know, how that particular supplement might uh, if it's, uh, uh, you know, if it is registered that it's been checked. Um, if it's not, you just tell the player it's not worth taking. Um, because according to the current collective bargaining agreement, you know, if you're taking something that's a performance enhancing drug, it's an automatic four game suspension. And in the NFL, at your, where you get 16 paychecks. So if you lose four weeks' salary, if you're making a million a year, you just lost 250000 for a decision that could have been avoided. Um, it, what's also ironic is if you test positive the first time for cocaine, you don't get suspended. And the reason for that is that that's not classified as a performance-enhancing drug, and you're covered by the American Disabilities Act. So most of that's <laughs> always collectively bargained, and I think Jafar, you probably have
1: the same thing in the
2: uh, MLB, correct? Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. So, there, there, there's, of, there's, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit, um, you know, with amphetamines now. They they've really cracked down on amphetamine use. Um, so those and cocaine would obviously fall under an, an amphetamine. So lumping all those into that category, uh, there is, uh, you know, suspension involved, um, you know, with games. Um, so it is a little more regulated in MLB than, um, and it's really across sports. Um, you know, there are rules and regulations across all these sports on these, but, I think just the difference in how they classify it and uh, how much of a suspension they they might get or, or, or they put on the track? Uh, I think even marijuana use is, is different across sports as well. So you really have to pay attention to the sport you're in, um, you know, the organization that you work for, um, you know, the governing body that you work for, and just pay close attention um, to those rules and regulations.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of, with a lot of the young college athletes just. It's in, you're aware that, you know, it's an educational process. If, if they're taking an asthma uh, medication, they have to make sure that, you know, everybody's, you know, every doctor and so forth is signed off and they have the uh, appropriate prescriptions, you know, before the drug testing starts. And the same thing with, uh, uh, you know, ADD medicines. You know, if they have the appropriate prescriptions, everything, um, but it's if they uh, – they don't have the appropriate prescriptions and they get into issues.
1: Yeah. You like in baseball, you have to have what's called a TUEs, like any prescription, um, you know, drug that might be classified, uh, to have a performance enhancing substance. You, you need a, a TUE an exemption. Um, so it's a, it's a process that, uh, you know, NBA does the same types of things. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, to make sure that they go through the right steps in order to, um, you know, obtain this medication. Um, because it's some, you know, in, in some cases it is needed uh, for, for certain individuals. So you take it individually and, and you make sure that it's, it's gone. The athlete g- goes about it the right way, you know? Um, so, you know, with, with that, in mind what like what works you know that an athlete can take so that we can educate the athlete properly like okay these are the things that work so you know because a lot of these things that they're getting it's it's either going to be highly toxic to your body and and the risk isn't gonna the risk outweighs the reward like it doesn't work (laughs) very well and you're just it's toxic to your kidneys and and things like that. So guys, what really works and what can athletes take safely, but also get maximum benefits, direct benefits from
0: Bob, before you answer that, the one thing I know I've experienced is the lack of education in college athletics on supplements. It's usually a high degree of uh, focus on foods and, and what you should be eating and a lack of education on supplements. It's almost like, Hey, if we don't talk about it that much, then maybe they won't think about taking supplements and it doesn't work like that. They, 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 definitely want to take them. They're going, they're going to take them. So.
3: Yeah. it, It definitely doesn't work like that because athletes nowadays are exposed to so much on, in the media and on the internet, Uh, It's easy for them to wander into a GNC or do do the equivalent thing online and be overwhelmed with all the promises that these supplement uh, products make about improving their performance. And let let me tell you, it's a daunting task even for a professional in sports nutrition or exercise science to wade through the pros and cons of of just one supplement to identify, you know, will this stuff work the way it's claimed to? is it safe to take does it contain contaminants there's no way an individual athlete even at the professional level has the time or most and most important uh, sort of the wherewithal and the experience to forage through all that and make sense out of it that's why I always encourage athletes who are considering to take a top of the supplement to you know get their team around and their support team uh you know the athletic trainers the strength coaches the The team physician, the the sports dietitian, people in the know to help them decide whether or not uh, taking a supplement is, number one, what they should be doing to supplement a good diet. And number two, uh, if it's going to cause them any health-related issues. And number three, is it safe from a contamination level?
0: Yeah, I agree with that one. Um, talk to me about uh, HGH and where we are today in athletes taking that substance. Which sports are more prone to take HGH?
3: Well, you're you're referring to human growth hormone. Yes. And you know the the, the type of the type of athletes who are predisposed to that obviously are the athletes who are interested in. Uh, strength, power, muscle mass, uh, things along those lines, and and you know sports that for which that's an important aspect, which is most sports, and also to help spur recovery from hard training and from injury. Um, yeah, you know, it's still a banned substance. I know that that there's sort of a movement afoot to to uh, make growth hormone available to help speed recovery from injury. I'm not quite sure how that would work in the whole uh, drug testing scheme of things, but nonetheless, um, you know, there's some evidence that growth hormone is, that may be its real benefit is helping accelerate the return from a sports injury. Um, From a scientific standpoint, on the other end of this, the uh, claims for growth hormone, the science is not as supportive of increased muscle mass and strength and, and the like. Interestingly enough, and kind of contrary to the name of the hormone, right?
1: Yeah, so I mean, with that, how, you know, and it goes back to my initial question. I think the important thing here is in the educational process is to follow up with what works, right? So how do we get a natural release of growth hormones? So we can educate an Atlas program back in the day, athletes teach training and learning how to avoid steroids. I, I think that a uh, program, it showed research wise that like we would educate and depending on the type of education, athletes were because of this invincibility thing, they were more apt to use. Uh, you know, you have an 18 year old that thinks they're invincible. So Um, it really does come down to the educational process, but then also always, in my belief is always following up with, so how can we do it naturally? How, how can we make this work? And my initial question was, so what does work? So when we just break it down to growth hormone, how can we release it naturally and get the max benefit out of, out of that? Right. And, and there's a couple of ways. And I think you as the expert, Bob, and then Ted, from the research standpoint, uh, educate us a little bit.
3: Well, I'll at least tee it up and you guys can jump in. Um, in terms of growth hormone or uh, other um, muscle building producing hormones like testosterone, for example, and it, all its derivatives, uh, nothing beats uh, hard training and the proper diet and uh, rest and rest and recovery. Got to throw that in there because that's when all the good stuff happens. Um, those three, diet, training, and proper recovery, uh, that combination drives up those uh, muscle mass and, stre- mu- and muscle strength producing hormones uh, across the board. Um, and that's the most effective and obviously the most natural way to accomplish that Uh, you know there you the amount of um, testosterone uh, just to choose one uh, well-known anabolic steroid that's naturally produced you know rises after training now it turns out that that rise in testosterone and other androgenic hormones anabolic hormones that naturally occur as a result of exercise Um, probably doesn't have much to do with the gain in muscle mass and strength. It's more the overall impetus of training combined with diet and rest and the natural fluctuations in anabolic hormones that that occur as a result of those three interventions, diet, training, and recovery.
2: Now, Bob, with regard to, uh, let's just say recovery, and an athlete finishes a hard strength training session and they say, you know, how soon should I ingest carbs and proteins? And at what quantities?
3: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the, the rule of thumb is the sooner the better because forget science for a second. It just makes intuitive sense that if you want your muscles to recover more quickly, you have to feed them after hard training. And they're hungry at that point for carbs and for protein in particular. And so the best thing to do is to provide our bodies what uh, what they need as as soon as we feasibly can to serve as a nutritional bridge to the next meal. Uh, In terms of muscle protein synthesis, the best thing to do is to consume at least 20 grams of some sort of high quality protein. It could be whey protein, it could be um, yogurt, anything that uh, eggs, a ham sandwich, anything with a high quality protein in it so that it provides the muscles with the essential amino acids that are needed to uh, kickstart muscle protein synthesis. And as you guys, I'm sure, uh, recognize the amino acid leucine is kind of the most important of the essential amino acids because it's the metabolic trigger that turns on muscle protein synthesis. And all high quality proteins have adequate amounts of leucine uh, to accomplish that task. So uh, protein is one part of the diet that's extraordinarily important, and that's true not only uh, soon after exercise, but also throughout the day where the research is becoming more and more clear that we need to consume uh, protein evenly spaced throughout the day. So instead of backloading it and having a high protein dinner and medium protein lunch and a very low protein breakfast, the best we can do for our muscles is to provide a sort of a standard amount of protein at each meal and snack so that we uh, provide a number of different um, sparks to muscle protein synthesis throughout the day. That'll give us the best uh, results in terms of muscle protein synthesis and increase in muscle mass and strength. Now, th- that said, I don't want to overplay the whole role of protein. Uh, because, you know, it it's icing on the cake of training. And as you guys know from your experience, athletes aren't getting anywhere unless they train hard enough. And that's particularly true with strength training. Consuming protein, you know, provides, uh, at, you know, an extra edge, but it's not the be-all and end-all. You've got to start with hard training, and uh, well-designed training programs that athletes are committed to following.
0: Bob, when you said 20 grams of protein, is that – where you start—that's the minimum. Does it matter how big the athlete is?
3: Well, yeah. You know, if you get a big athlete, uh, you can double that. I mean, there's not going to be any harm in doing that. And yeah, I when I provide uh, uh, when I do presentations on performance nutrition, the whole question of protein always comes up. And so I tell people is it's just an easy rule of thumb. If you can, cons- if you weigh two hundred pounds, try to consume two hundred grams of protein. Yeah, it's easy to do one gram of protein per pound of body weight per day. It's, it's above the, the current recommendations, but not so much that it's going to cause anybody any problems. It's easy for athletes to remember. And um, it's going to provide more than enough protein for even the hardest training
1: athlete. Yeah. And there are, you know we have guys from a. Everyone wants the path of least resistance, right? So that's why that's why we're having this topic, this you know this discussion. Because, but, you know we have guys live pregame now in in baseball and in basketball. But um, in baseball, where you played every day, when do you recover, kind of thing? So we used to think, oh, we would work out after games, and uh, I mean we've changed our whole approach and, and game and and our strength. Training routines are happening before games uh, in basketball. We're training guys right before the game for to improve energy. Right, so research has shown that it can release growth hormone, release uh, you know testosterone, and have a positive effect on performance uh, in the game. Uh, I think there's some research that says that just one set of uh, at your, your 75% of your 1RM, whether it be a squat, uh, you know, typically we do more like total body exercises, but a squat or even a bench press, uh, just one set in a non-fatiguing way can improve uh, or, or release hormones. So uh, I think just the approach has changed where we're actually doing more activity prior to the game so that, to improve performance rather than everyone thinking that, Lifting weights is actually a fatiguing thing, um, so mm-hmm. it's, really, it's really been uh, something that we've, how we've changed um, with the times, you know, just based on great research out there. So,
3: uh, yeah, Jabbar- well, You know, you mentioned, oh, go I, I'm just going to interject quickly and say that uh, Jabbar mentioned one thing that uh, um, is, is really important, and that is to think of training regardless of whether it's strength training or power or speed or endurance. As simply as a stimulus, a training session is a stimulus. And after that stimulus occurs is when all the good stuff happens. That's why nutrition and rest and recovery are so doggone important because that supports the the response that we're all looking for. And those accumulated responses day after day of training is what combines to produce improved performance.
1: Love that. I love that. Simple, training is a stimulus. It invokes a response that it couldn't be better than that. Ted, now, what were you gonna say?
2: Oh, I was gonna say, so you're essentially looking at those as like a, a priming uh, priming session?
1: Yes, exactly, correct. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, Bob, um, since you've done a lot of research in hydration, um, some athletes have said, well, should I have branched chain aminos in my uh, hydration beverage? to help decrease some of the catabolic effects of exercise. What are your thoughts on that?
3: No, it doesn't make any sense scientifically. You know, when, when we're working up a sweat, our bodies need, uh, water, sugar, and salt. And that's what conventional sports drinks are formulated to deliver. And so, you know, staying well hydrated is probably the most ergogenic thing athletes can do to protect their performance because even, even a slight amount of dehydration, uh, can have a negative effect on our performance capacity. Um, but in a sense, we want the catabolic effects of exercise because that's part of the stimulus. Uh, and our bodies will respond to that, catab- that increase in metabolism and the increase in the inflammatory response. We don't want to quench that. We, we don't want it to get out of hand, but at the same time, we don't want to uh, slow it down or blunt it because that's part of the stimulus that our body recognizes in order to promote all the responses that are needed on the cellular level to improve our performance.
0: Bob, I've got a question about pre just going back to what Javar was talking about as far as lifting. Uh, I was looking at the, the list of supplements that have been proven scientifically to work, so creatine, beta-alanine, mm-hmm. uh, bicarbonate, caffeine, uh, beetroot juice, uh, what do you recommend for athletes uh, to consume pre-game from a supplement standpoint, or do you prefer that they just eat certain foods pre
3: Well, you know, I, I'm, always, I'm a food-first guy, so that, uh, you know, my advice always is to, for athletes to eat as varied a diet as they possibly can. I mean, even young athletes have a good sense of what they should and shouldn't do from a from a nutrition standpoint. And so, I try to work with them to accentuate uh, the foods that they enjoy eating, that that are particularly pregame, that are comfortable for them, and uh, um, you know, just try to make sure that they're eating as uh, varied a diet as possible with lean meats and dairy and fruits and vegetables and grains and seeds and whatever. Uh, they can work into their diet that, that they enjoy consuming. Um, uh, you know, pregame, again, making sure that uh, muscle glycogen stores are high, that uh, the, the body's well hydrated. Those are the two biggest things from a performance standpoint. Um, but, you know, I also try to help encourage athletes who are interested in beet juice or cherry, tart cherry juice or creatine carnitine collagen peptides anything that they feel uh, might give them an edge I try to work with them to to have them uh, work those types of foods or supplements into their uh, daily regimen so that it's uh, comfortable for them it's something that's not new and different and you know they become accustomed to it and you know if it's only a placebo effect that benefits them that's fine by me
0: this podcast is sponsored by Soronex Exercise Equipment. Since 1980, Sorenex has been a family-owned business responsible for legendary innovations and training solutions that have changed the face of strength training. Today, Soranex is the most sought-after strength brand for professional teams, colleges, high schools, and military units. During this process of growth, our clients have become an extended family to us, part of our brotherhood, our culture, We want to thank you, our customers, friends, and family for being the foundation on which Soarnex is built. We promise to do our best to continue to serve you with the best strength, training, equipment, and service in the industry.
2: Yeah, I think the one point Bob made was real, uh, is that if guys are gonna do something on game day, I want them doing it during the week, during practice, just so their GI system's accustomed to it. Uh, Particularly if somebody's going to try, you know, sodium bicarbonate uh, because you just might see the shoes underneath the stall when they should be out on the field uh, just because they're not accustomed to that. Um, So whatever they're going to try on game day, they should be doing during the course of the week during practice. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, Let's just pick one of those, like creatine. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of research now on creatine. I mean, Pat and I, you know, when we first started coaching, it was just, you know, the, the common misconception was this was causing hamstring strains and, and injury. And uh turns out that one study showed that it, in rats that it showed uh, that it was dehydration where really what it came down to was that the creatine wasn't getting into the muscle cell. So the actual delivery system was poor and then they changed the molecular composition of the creatine and over time it's, it's gotten better. Right. So where are we at with creatine now? Um, a lot of our players, uh, you know, are, are taking creatine, um, and then again, is if, if someone chooses not to, taking the food-first approach, let's get a fresh reminder of how we can naturally get creatine in, in our bodies.
3: Well, you know, creatine is an animal nutrient. The, the fancy term is zoo-nutrient, uh, as opposed to the phytonutrients that we find in plants. So, you know, creatine and carnitine and, and collagen peptides, those are all animal nutrients, and And um, so that's the best source for creatine. And normally, you know, we we consume an adequate amount of creatine uh, by by way of a balanced diet. But at the same time, you know, creatine, I think, is on everybody's list of supplements, a dietary supplement that has a good amount of science showing its uh, effectiveness. And, you know, uh, like all nutrition interventions, including supplements, there are responders and non-responders. Uh, you know, some guys will do real well on creatine and, and feel the benefits, and others uh, won't. But the same is true for virtually every intervention.
2: Yeah, I think also the other thing, you, you know, one of the trends, and I'm sure you guys see it, is you'll have an athlete that goes vegan. And, uh, and it, you know, the research shows for that particular group of athletes that creatine can be very beneficial.
3: Yeah, as well as the other animal nutrients, too, because uh, of the fact that they're, you know vegans don't eat any animal products, so uh, extra care has to be taken. Uh, but that said, even even athletes on vegan diets and certainly on vegetarian diets can get all the nutrients and protein uh, that they need just by uh, a thoughtful approach. And again, a sports dietitian is a great asset in, in these circumstances to keep athletes pointing in the right direction.
0: Is creatine vegan-friendly?
3: Yeah, probably not, since it comes from an animal source. Although, maybe they maybe they make an exception if it's uh, produced in a lab. I don't know. I don't know how, how creatine is derived nowadays.
0: <laughs> what That's about? A good point, though. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. Like, how do they make it then? Uh, what about bicarbonate? This is something that I probably really just became aware of or paid attention to in the last maybe two or three years. I know it's been around, but what exactly does it do?
3: Well, sodium bicarbonate, baking soda, as well as uh, sodium citrate, which is just another way to consume it, um, it provides um, an extracellular buffer for for the lactic acid and other metabolic acids that are produced during intense exercise. So in a sense, it helps us go longer and stronger um, to maintain high-intensity activities. Uh, so sodium bicarbonate is an extracellular buffer, and beta-alanine is an intracellular buffer. And you know, some research shows that the combination of the two, as you might expect, provides uh, more of a performance benefit than either um, intervention. Uh, by itself, so buffering the uh, increasing the buffering capacity of the body, which occurs naturally when we train properly, uh, but bicarbonate and beta-alanine are two ways to increase the body's buffering capacity against lactic acid and other things that uh, might slow us down sooner
0: than we want. Bob, I should probably stop trying to take notes while you're talking and just (laughs) (laughs) – that is good information. Um, What about beet juice? Is it it better just to drink the beet juice, or is it good to do the beet extract, and what does it do?
3: Well, you know, beet juice, beet extract – Uh, celery, arugula, there there are a lot of things that along these lines, a lot of vegetables that contain nitrates, just a a kind of an inorganic compound that uh, occurs commonly in foods. But our body can convert those nitrates into nitric oxide, which um, increases blood flow to to muscles. And so the research, again, it's pretty compelling, uh, particularly for endurance athletes, uh, and anyone who's interested in improving their stamina, that regular consumption of uh, uh, a diet high in vegetables, as well as consuming something like beet juice, um, provides a, an extra boost to our endurance performance. Uh, and so that's why it's been so popular among you know cyclists and runners and and other endurance athletes. Uh, but it also it, because it increases blood flow, helps to reduce systolic blood pressure. So it's a good for you type of uh, nutrition intervention, even for non athletes.
0: I've got a question that Javar wants to ask, but I'm not sure if he wants to. I'll ask it for him for old guys, older guys, former athletes, in our joints. What do you recommend uh, to keep the thing going, keep the machine going uh, for the coach that's out there and uh, they, they, they like to be active still? What what are some of the best uh, – what's the best nutrition and supplements for guys like us?
3: Yeah, well, you know, everybody's heard of uh, glucosamine and chondroitin and all the research is spotty in terms of some studies showing it works, some studies showing it doesn't you know, some people get uh, get benefits from it. So I'm always of the philosophy that if it works for you and it's not causing any harm, then by all means, stick with it. So I would encourage people to try that just to see if they're one of the ones who respond to it. Um, you know, I, again, consuming a, a healthy, varied diet is the first step in, in all of this. And uh, uh, consuming a diet uh, that contains an ample amount of omega-3 fatty acids is another good thing to do uh those on omega-3 fatty acids uh just more and more research coming out showing benefits almost across the board uh, not only in terms of uh sports related benefits relative to performance and augmenting gains in muscle mass and uh um, reducing muscle soreness and and uh, muscle damage uh but also to help uh you know, with uh, with joints and other aspects of the immune system uh, because uh, omega-3 fats you know the fats from salmon and, and fatty fish um, you know have an, have an antioxidant and anti inflammatory effect that seems to be uh, part of their wide their widespread benefits
2: Bob what do you what's your thoughts on some of the research that's come out looking at the combination of vitamin C and uh, gelatin for, uh, for for connective tissue adaptation.
3: Yeah, you know, I I, I I didn't know much about that until recently. And when I started digging, I didn't think I'd be impressed, but I, I turned out to be kind of impressed by the uh, the science that's there. Uh, this is something that's in its scientific infancy and definitely needs a lot more a lot more studies before we can draw a confident conclusion about how effective it is. But the whole idea of consuming collagen, which is you know gelatin, um, and particularly that not the you know collagen is a protein, so it's going to be uh, partially or wholly digested in our uh, in our gut into into individual amino acids. But also in the case of collagen that Digestion isn't complete, and so you get a bunch of individual amino acids uh, which are handled by the body the way they are from any protein source, but you also get uh, a number of different fragments, uh, collagen peptides, um, individual amino acids that are still bound together. So you might have two or three or four or five short chains of amino acids, and that is what appears to be the uh, active, the bioactive aspect of consuming. Uh, sources of collagen. Um, and again, increases in muscle mass, improvements in connective tissue, reductions in muscle damage and soreness are among some of the uh, responses that studies have shown. Again, more studies are needed, but uh, the, the risk is uh, little to none of consuming collagen. So I would definitely recommend it for some, anybody who's interested in, in taking it.
0: Yeah. Javar, what was your, uh, pregame meal when you were working with, uh, in major league baseball and now, uh, basketball, is it, is there a difference and how has that evolved since you've been coaching postgame yeah. meals?
1: Yeah. So we did a lot of research and structuring of a routine, you know, when a guy was playing every day, um, timing is so important, uh, throughout the day for meals, for naps, uh, everything was, was rehearsed. So we, we put together a performance handbook uh, that covered the proper timing of of meals. Even, uh, even if a guy was going to sleep in, wake up, order room service or, or put that little card on your door, get, get the, uh, the food delivered, eat, and then go back to sleep a little bit if you, if you had to. Um, but, uh, you know, that first meal a day was important, important. We, we even found that it was important to chew food, uh, that it, it releases endorphins that, uh, triggers, a, a alertness, uh, alertness, as far as the brain goes. Um, just, you know, so we we're finding out a lot of cool things. So we, we made everything about timing, uh, right before the game, like two, three hours, we were trying to push guys not to ingest a lot of solid foods. Um, but, but they should have been fueled enough um, in their earlier meals. So if it's a 7 o'clock game, the, the majority of their meals they've gotten in uh, happen before 4 o'clock. And then by then, they're at the, the field. They're doing a lot of activity anyways. So like three hours before the game, there's a lot of practice going on. There. So they don't really have time to sit down and have a full meal anyways. But, um, you know, the guys who are playing every day, we we – talk to them about soft foods, protein supplements that they could take just to, again, what is a supplement? It's just to take the place of where a meal should go, but uh, liquid-laden types of meals, Uh, uh, liquid-laden fruits, uh, oranges, and, um, you know, things like that, that they could eat pre. And then post, uh, we really got lighter with it because you're recovering when you sleep, right? So if you're breaking down a lot of foods like a big heavy steak is not necessarily something you want because you're during sleep, your body's got to break that down. So you're spending energy breaking down this food when it could be used, um, more efficiently to help in the recovery process. So, uh, we were, we were really educating on post game to what to take in that. It's a little bit lighter. Uh, you don't have to break down too much. Um, or you don't have to use a lot of energy to break down, uh, Think you know a heavy steak or something like that? So yeah, it was pretty well rounded. Can you hear? Can you hear my daughter screaming? And <laughs> <laughs> Is it I, think, I
3: think she's agreeing. I think she's agreeing <laughs> with you, and I would too. Uh, those are all very smart uh, pieces of advice, I, I, and I would think so, particularly in the NBA when the guys play night games and then have to have some nutrition. Before they go to bed, you know that's a that's a great opportunity for to nourish body, provide the nutrients that are needed to spark that recovery process, and particularly to help support the all the intracellular adaptations that have to occur um, at, as part of recovery and and improve performance.
0: Ted, with uh, messaging, are you in charge or do, are you involved at all with any of the messaging uh, that goes to the NFL regarding uh, nutrition and supplements?
2: It would just be uh, if individual teams call me, I'll try mm-hmm. to provide information for them. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times they'll say, hey, uh, we've got an athlete that's got some questions, you mind talking to them? Uh, just try to, you know, uh, serve as a, It's a conduit between what research is out there and, you know, trying to help them as much as they can.
0: Um, this is a good one. Um, because I've heard a few athletes say that they had taken, um, performance enhancement, uh, supplements, but for other purposes, uh, whether it was ED drugs or whatever it was, um, where does that fit as far as is it illegal? Is it, um, you know, is, how does that affect athletic performance even?
3: Well, you know, the, the three categories of supplements that are l- most likely to contain performance-enhancing drugs or banned substances are sexual enhancement supplements, uh, weight loss supplements, and supplements that claim to benefit uh, muscle mass and strength. Uh, those three categories am- amount to an enormous uh, percentage of the supplements that uh, that have been found to contain harmful, subs- harmful or banned substances.
2: Yeah, if you look at the FDA recalls, um, it, Bob hit it right on the head. If you look at some of these sexual enhancement supplements, most of them contain prescription drugs in them.
0: Illegally. <laughs> Illegally. <laughs> yes. So I know, so some people may ask, why would a supplement company put something in their uh, products that's not listed on the label? What is the, uh, what's the answer to that, uh, for for to that question? Well, you just have,
3: yeah, money. You just have people that, uh, you know, don't care to abide by the law, that are, don't have the ethics and morals that they should have in that regard and are willing to uh, sort of cheat the system to, m- to make a quick buck, knowing that even if they get cracked down upon by the FDA, they can be back in business with a different product, maybe even with the same ingredients uh, a few weeks or months later.
0: So there's no uh, consequence for a company uh, putting substances that aren't in the label in their products?
3: The, the, the most common consequence is just to receive a letter from the FDA alerting, that, uh, alerting the manufacturer that the FDA is on to them and that they are expected to withdraw their product from the market. Wow. Now, in the most egregious pl- uh, cases where companies go back time and time again, then the FDA may choose to prosecute. Uh, but, you know, there are so many of these things that happen and, you know, the, the power of the FDA is relatively limited in, to, you know, pursue them. So that's part of the wild west of the supplement industry.
2: Yes. Yeah, Bob said, it's got to be pretty agreed. There was a case. Uh, it's been several years ago. There was a, it was like a weight loss energy burner, and one of the ingredients was uh, that it shouldn't have been in a product because you literally—I think you had to have worked for uh, uh, in the agricultural industry to kill pests. It was like to kill like insects for farmers. And uh, it would speed up the metabolism and literally kill insects instantly. But somehow this got into a supplement and a few people died from taking it. Yeah. In fact, I think That's there was. When the a-
3: FDA. Yes. That's when the FDA will take notes when people die.
0: Yeah. All right. I've got a, um, a story back from when I played when I was with the Chargers. Um, one of our offensive linemen, he was the heaviest guy on the team. Cause we were talking about weight loss, um, drugs or supplements. And we went over to his house and he had a case of these shakes on his counter. And while we were over there, he opened one and chugged it. We kept talking about five or 10 minutes later. He opened another one, chugged it. <laughs> a Few minutes later, he opened another one. It was a slim fast shake and he chugged it. So he finished three off in probably like 30 minutes. And we're just looking at him like, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, I, I got to lose weight. He said, I keep drinking all these shakes, but I, the weight's not coming off. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, hey, man, you know there are calories in those shakes, right? He goes, what? No, these are slim fast shakes. These help, help you lose weight. So <laughs> this is a professional athlete. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: Happens all the time
0: happens all the time. It's it's one of the best stories. I can still see him like a confused look on his face. Like, why aren't these things working? (laughs) Uh, and, um, I think another story is I was staying with a guy and he was trying to keep his weight down. And I took what I thought was just some antacids and they weren't antacids. They were diuretics. And I, Took him like he would take Tums. I was like, you know, you just take what's on the label, right? And it was uh Yeah, that night was <laughs> that night, yeah, I was I was in the re- I was in the bathroom all night. But I remember I hydrated well the next day. Explain to me, Bob, why why did I feel so light and I was running the fastest I ever ran?
3: Uh, the next day after taking diuretics?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah.
3: And how far were you running? Yeah.
0: 30, 40 yards. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> just, just
3: being lighter. Maybe will, 40 make you go faster. yards
0: on kickoff return or something.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you could be lighter and, uh, in, in something like running, where you're carrying, you know, your body mass. Less, less weight means more speed.
0: But I I really remember my body weight. I thought I got it back to where it was originally. It just seemed like I just felt lighter. I don't know why. Maybe I just couldn't trick myself into it. I don't know. Could be. Could be.
2: Now, Bob, along those lines, you know, uh, this would be more so with endurance athletes is the debate of, drinking versus not drinking relative to carrying of the, you know, body weight to hit certain speeds and times and endurance races. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, it doesn't work in anything over short sprints. That's why I was asking how far that was running. And, uh, you know, it, there's been a number of studies that have shown very clearly that uh, when athletes dehydrate or take diuretics and, and reduce their body weight as a result, they perform worse. And when they stay well hydrated regardless of the weight loss now if you want to lose fat that's a different
1: story so what is a you know we talk about sleep being a major part of our recovery uh, and the release of hormones and things like that so what, you know, you, you have a lot of things that, athlete, let's take a college athlete, right? Let's, or The life of a college athlete is, you know, you might drink a ton of coffee, you're studying, <laughs> you're up late, you know, you might have partied, so you're drinking um, throughout that, a over a course of a week, maybe a couple times a week. So where, where are we at with, the sleep and how alcohol caffeine you know hydration how how all of that is affected uh and what how should we what should we be educating our athletes is really the bottom line um you know obviously they're going to go do it they're going to go party um but what should we be telling them as far as so they make a better decision as far as how is how it affects performance
3: Well, I'd start with uh, the age-old adage that uh, everything in moderation. If you know they're going to go out and and have some beers, again, everything in moderation. Because, you know, from a hydration standpoint, let's just focus on that for a second. Uh, The research is pretty clear. If you consume beer that contains 5% or less alcohol, um, usually that's not going to have any negative impact on your hydration status particularly you know you might be consuming with pizza and chips and pretzels and the like Um, you know from a hydration standpoint that's um, not much of a a, an issue of course binge drinking and you know just overdoing it doing something that's not in moderation is going to have a negative consequences not only to hydration status but obviously to the function of your central nervous system so not good
0: Yeah,
2: who who was the reliever for the – since, Bob, you live in Chicago, I think it was the year the White Sox won the World Series. They had the uh, pitcher was in the clubhouse because he had started maybe a day or two prior, and he was just pounding beers throughout the game. And so he gets a call that says, hey, you're going to have to probably get dressed and come up and go in. And I think he went in for maybe an inning and, you know, he was probably legally drunk. And I think he he pitched okay. I'm not, you know, saying (laughs) that as a suggestion. (laughs) But I I think when we look at uh, a lot of aspects of human performance, some of these things, they would never get passed by a human subjects committee. But it's interesting to hear stories such as that.
1: uh, There's a ton of – baseball stories <laughs> that, uh, I mean, there's, you know, and, and Louis, actually that brings up. So Louise Berg, you Ted, you, you provided me an article that you know, talked about individual differences really well in supplements and how some things affect others. Like, you know, if you're, if you're like, if, if you're always up, if you're high energy, naturally like caffeine might not be the best thing for you. Um, prior to a game. And, and if it, it could be the opposite of you, low energy, you know, some sort of downer might not be the best thing for you. So there's a lot of individual differences that, that go on. But um, in, in the baseball world, there's, uh, especially the guys that are coming in late in game relievers have different routines to get them up, get them, keep them, keep their nerves. Like, you know, there's a lot of different routines that each player has from an individual standpoint, uh, whether inadvertently or purposefully <laughs> <You know. laughs>
3: yeah yeah and I think recognizing those individual differences is a big step in the right direction uh, because we all respond differently to the same stimulus and uh, you know athletes are no different in that regard so being able to work with them on an individual basis I think is the right way to go from a science standpoint and, and certainly something that they should appreciate.
2: Now, Bob, you know, some of the DNA testing that, you know, people do for, you know, Ancestry or 23andMe, um, do those have any value with regard to nutritional um, advice?
3: Yeah. You know, Ted, it's not an area that I uh, dug into much, but the last time I looked at it, I would have to say that, uh, at this point in time, there's not a lot there that would give us a a way to sort of customize on an individual basis based on genetic testing, um, a a person's diet or use of supplements.
0: Yeah, Bob, I've seen the advertisements based on somatotype as well. So nutrition uh, information or um, people that they can that want you to call in or give money so that they can base your diet off of your specific body type um, yeah. are you familiar with any of that
3: Well yeah, I'm more familiar with the diets that were around uh, for your blood type so I'm not surprised to hear <laughs> variations on that theme for body types
1: How does a brain factor in all of this because it seems like you know everything's regulated through the brain so how, how do we how do we bridge the gap and you know is there a way to train the brain to get a, a positive uh, performance benefit out of it you know in a way of performance enhancing
3: well that's a great question and uh, without a great answer uh, at least for me um, you know that the brain is a, a constant user of blood sugar, of glucose. And so making sure that we have adequate um, liver glycogen stores and adequate carbohydrate in our diet that ensures those glyc- those liver stores is absolutely essential to maintain our blood glucose, our blood sugar levels, uh, because that's what the brain uses. It can't, under normal circumstances, use anything else. Um, so you know, the carbohydrate content of the diet and consuming carbohydrates during hard training and and long competitions is uh, absolutely essential uh, for brain health. But, you know, that's a very simplistic look at an extraordinarily complex organ uh, that has all sorts of other um, uh, responses to what we consume in our diet. And you're absolutely right. You know, the brain, the brain controls everything. You know, our muscles don't work, uh, by themselves, they, they work because the, the central nervous system connected to them. And, and I think the more we understand along those lines, the more we're going to be able to, to guide athletes and develop training programs that um, benefit both muscles as well as the nervous system.
0: Bob, with injured athletes, do you find that they have different dietary needs and when they're in the rehab process?
3: Yeah, you know, they do. Uh, in, you know, as, as you guys probably know from experience, a lot of athletes who have become injured are very concerned that they're going to gain weight during their rehab, or particularly those who have, you know, have a limb immobilized that really restricts their physical activity. Um, but one of the things we don't want to do is have an athlete gain weight or lose weight while they're uh, rehabbing. The goal is to try to keep them at that same weight Um, Because a lot of times, you know, you put athletes on crutches, they're going to spend a lot of energy moving around during the day or or even in a a cast of some sort. So we've got to recognize that uh, athletes' uh, calorie needs may not change all that much. uh, But the goal is to make sure that they stay relatively the same weight and consume more protein than usual. Because one of the things that we want to make sure happens is that there's enough protein there. To um, number one, resist the natural catabolism that's going to occur as a result of whatever bed rest um, is required, as well as to promote the, um, uh, you know, protect muscle mass um, during the course of rehab.
0: Well, gentlemen, that's been a, a great session. Uh, a lot of information um, dropped here by Bob, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative. I don't know if you all have any more questions or if we have any more uh, anything else uh, that we haven't covered.
2: Oh, will uh, one last thing for Bob. You know, with college, uh, you know, fall teams getting ready to gear it up here in July and August – Uh, What are some talking points, advice you would give these coaches for their athletes relative to staying properly hydrated?
3: Well, the best thing to do is uh, encourage athletes to weigh themselves periodically before and after workouts. Um, They they don't have to do that every day, but uh, a couple times a week, just to give them a sense of how much uh, sweat they might be losing and encourage them to minimize that loss by drinking enough during training. And my experience is that once athletes have a few weeks of doing that, they get a pretty good sense of whether they're losing a lot of sweat, a little sweat, a medium amount of, amount of sweat, and whether or not they're doing a good job drinking. Because if, if you get an athlete who's more than 2% of their body weight dehydrated, you have an athlete who's going whose performance is impaired, both physically and mentally. So encouraging the kids to make sure that they – drink enough during their training to offset most of that sweat loss is the most important thing they can do to help preserve their performance and to speed, their recovery, because it'd be one less thing they have to worry about after a workout.
1: And if, nope. so, if you were the average, with all this said, if you were the average athlete, not, not you personally, without bias, if you were the average professional athlete or elite college athlete and you had to maximize performance on game day or throughout the week and you wanted to create a routine what would be your routine including your supplement plan?
3: Well obviously it depends on the sport depends on the athlete in terms of how much he or she might be losing in term in sweat loss um, what their energy output is what the extent of, uh, potential muscle damage is, you know, how they have responded in the past, uh, you know, what their individual, uh, responses are, you know, because some athletes, for example, are very prone to muscle damage and, and delayed onset muscle soreness and others aren't even exposed to, this, to the same, uh, training. So, uh, knowing things from an individual basis is absolutely required in order to fine tune a, a, sports nutrition regimen. And, you know, it, it starts with a, a, a varied diet, making sure that the athlete's consuming enough calories and to give them the energy that they're going to need. It's staying well hydrated throughout the day, and particularly at, at times when they're sweating. It's consuming a diet that has an adequate amount of carbohydrates and protein. And it's the timing of that intake during activity, uh, particularly with, with, carb, with carbohydrates in mind, and after the training uh, with protein in mind, um, to give them the, the big elements that are gonna be the most benefit to their performance and particularly to help support the adaptations that are required so their performance improves over time.
1: So would you, prior to a game, if you were the athlete, would you take in 150 milligrams of caffeine?
3: It uh, depends what I was trying to accomplish. 150 milligrams is, you know, uh, definitely enough for uh, kind of the if there is a normal size athlete to provide a performance uh, boost.
1: And well, not many um, people are, are the size of Pat Ivey. So let's go. Uh, let's go with <laughs> two twenty. Let's go with six six one two twenty football player. It's Saturday. And I have a 12 o'clock game and I'm about to hit the field. I've, I've had breakfast. We had a team meal. Um, would you suggest, uh, and and I'm kind of, I'm at homeostasis, right? Like I'm, I'm cool. You know, I'm alert. I'm up. Um, you know, but I'm not overly excited, nor am I just completely, uh, you know, a low energy guy. So, if I'm the typical average athlete going into a football game, that uh, would you suggest uh, 150 milligrams of caffeine?
3: Well, there's there's no doubt that caffeine is a, is an ergogenic aid, not only for endurance exercise, but now more and more studies are showing for, you know, strength workouts and sprint workouts and, and the like. So um, yeah, if, if the person can tolerate the the caffeine without getting overly nervous and jittery then uh, something along those lines would, would be appropriate if they respond to it in a positive way.
1: Ted, you said, it, you said it pretty good earlier. Like, Yeah, I don't think, you know, putting it into practice before the game, like is probably a good <laughs> idea just to see how you can respond. I mean, if I'm taking in 200 milligrams of caffeine for the first time yeah. uh, and I'm 180 pounds, uh, soak and wet, it, it's probably not a good idea. So you, you might want to.
3: Yeah, unless they have experience with it. You're right. Absolutely right. <laughs>
1: right.
2: Hey, Bob, is, what, uh, what are two books you could uh, recommend to the listeners on uh, either nutrition or uh, ergogenic aids?
3: Well, you know, there's a good sports nutrition book by, uh, by two authors by the name of Eukendrup and Gleason. And it's just called Sports Nutrition. Um, that's a particularly good one. And then the there's a, a good sports nutrition manual from um, the, the organization called SCAN, the Sports and Cardiovascular Nutritionists. And that's also titled uh, Sports Nutrition, a Practice Manual for Professionals. So those are two. Uh, great resources.
1: Thank you. Anything new out there on the horizon, like you know, new and upcoming stuff that's interesting interesting to share?
3: You know, I I mentioned this earlier, but the whole business about Omega 3s has me excited, uh, because the more I learn about it, the more I realize that, you know, there's a lot there, and the research is Enough in terms of quality and quantity that gives me confidence that uh, athletes across the board should be paying more attention to their omega three fatty acid intake.
0: Where do you get omega three fatty acids from? From well,
3: you know, it's basically from fatty fatty fish, but you know, you can uh, get them in supplement form. There are some products on the market that contain them that. The challenge is that uh, a lot of them don't uh, taste all that great because you get that sort of fishy flavor with them, Uh, but there are some uh, new products that kind of have tackled that nicely and, um, you know, are are very palatable.
1: And from a uh, muscle mass Standpoint, a guy, you know, again, a college athlete is trying to gain size and strength, uh, and wants to take a supplement. It, you know, let's do it the healthy way. He wants to do it the healthy way. What would you suggest? What is the go-to?
3: Well, you start with creatine, by far. That that would be the go-to. Um, in in addition, obviously, to to the right diet.
2: Now, Bob, what's the uh, latest research on HMB?
3: Well, it's it's not all that promising. There was a lot of um, initial interest and excitement about hydroxy hydroxy methyl but uh, just consuming leucine as part of uh, uh, foods or the right type of supplement, it uh, you know provides the the best benefit to muscle protein synthesis.
1: Pat, yeah, we could ask questions all day long if we, <laughs> we, we, we could keep going. I, I, got, I got tons and tons and tons, man. This is, this is the, this, these are the keys to performance, right, is the nutrition, um, you know, and, and just as much work and planning you have to take into your strength and conditioning routine you have to use in your nutritional planning and uh, supplements and things like that as well.
3: Yeah, exactly. You want to you wanna use nutrition and supplements to help promote the responses from the stimulus of training.
0: Bob, if you go in to speak to a, a team of athletes and you only get to talk about one thing, what, what is that one thing you're going to talk about?
3: Uh, it depends on the group of athletes, you know, because uh, if it's athletes who are sweating up a storm, I'll talk about hydration because that's going to have the biggest impact. Um, on on their performance. So that, that's usually a go-to. Um, if it's athletes who are, you know, if it's endurance athletes, I might talk about carbohydrates as the first thing. If it's strength related athletes, I'm going to be talking about protein and and related topics.
0: Hydration, protein, and carbs. There you go. (laughs) Yep. The big, the big three. The big three. Well, I think we should wrap this show up. It's been a pleasure having everyone back together again. Bob, it was a pleasure getting to know you. Um, you're, you're a walking, I don't know if people could say walking encyclopedias anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can say
3: it. Nobody will know
0: what it is. Yeah. A walking encyclopedia or your laptop, open laptop. <laughs> um, <laughs> appreciate you spending some time with us and, and helping us to uh, continue this conversation regarding uh, nutrition and athletic performance uh, you know, we're, our goal is to take the research and take it beyond that and take it to re- practical application and I believe we were able to do that uh, with this so thank you so much um, Ted, Javar
2: All right, everybody have a good evening it's great again
0: it's a pleasure.
1: Thanks guys. Uh,
0: thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Sets and Reps, where we provide the performance edge. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Soronex Exercise Equipment. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. You can find show notes and more at beyondsetsandreps.com. That's B-E-Y-O-N-D-S-E-T-S-A-N-D-R-E-P-S dot com.